3: Time for your favorite show. The Weekend Report
0: is on the radio.
2: Thank you, Perry Woods. And yes, indeed, The Weekend Report is on your radio. Thank you so much for being a part of it. My name is Tony Colombo here in studio with producer Frank Ladd. And my partner Chris Arps is once again connected through the marvel of modern technology there at the ARPS compound somewhere in the metro area under 50 feet of concrete and steel in a nondescript building that you'll never find, no matter how hard you try. (laughs) Tony, 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 how are you? Hey, what's happening? I thought you were going to bust out and do a little song there. Uh,
3: And Frank, how are you?
4: I am well. I'm looking at your beautiful digs. I like the flannel (laughs) pants you got on. You really dressed
3: (laughs) up for us today. Frank, that's like too much information for the listeners. Nope, not know, really. They don't need to know all that.
2: So how come um, – why do we not have a, a, an interesting background to look at again?
3: Because uh, I told you that I didn't have it properly set up, and and Skype doesn't really work well without the green screen. And to be honest with you, I didn't want Frank dogging me out saying, look at that cheesy-looking <laughs> background you got. So I, so I got rid of it before Frank, you
2: missed it. Last week he was um, – <laughs> he was he was testing out this um i guess an app or something that will when you're doing zoom calls it will put a a yeah. background behind you mm-hmm. however you want so it looked like he was like in a corner penthouse in new york overlooking uh, the park or the yeah, city just yeah like up in the sky i mean it, it was boston except except for Sometimes the microphone would phase in and out. Sometimes his <laughs> face would phase in. And uh, out.
3: Sometimes his arms would phase haven't in. Haven't quite and worked
4: out. out the bugs, huh? Yeah.
3: And, <laughs> so you, and and you know how bad it was, Tony. Do you think I want Frank seeing that and yeah, dogging me no out for kidding. the next? Week Carl's or two? bad
4: enough. Oh, no. Did it yeah. look like the I older brother from uh, Back to the Future slowly fading yes. away in the yeah. uh, in the photograph? And when
3: he would
2: move, there'd be like trailers behind his arms. You know, like. If you're, you know, like following
4: his arms movement as he went, somebody pretty... needs to in- invest in better internet service up there.
3: <laughs> what is this, the uh, Chris Arps roast today, or no, what? No, it was you just. You put I'd...
4: yourself on, on, on a table by
3: putting up a background. I right? was
2: just looking forward to seeing what uh, terrible background pants. we'd have this week, but um, you look very cozy today,
3: Thank my friend. You. Next week I will have uh, have a background for you. Thank you. Yeah. I've, uh, my wife bought me this for Christmas a couple of uh, couple of years ago. Very comfortable.
2: So uh, plenty to talk about again this week. Let's start Mm -hmm. with uh, the let's let's start with, Chris, your thoughts at this stage of the president's lawsuits contesting the election. How are you feeling about it right now?
3: Well, I I still feel the same that I felt uh, after uh, Election Day. I, I felt that if a winner was not determined on election night. Donald Trump was probably going to lose. That looks like that's probably going to happen. But this is getting very interesting. You know, uh, Rudy Giuliani has been making the case before some judges in Pennsylvania and down in Georgia. But one thing that's really been interesting to me is the video that was released from the uh, State Farm Arena that purportedly shows uh, ballots being trucked in through suitcases. Uh, Republican uh, poll watchers were told to go home. We were finished counting for the night. And then during that time, uh, people are shown on film counting ballots without any supervisors watching them. And, uh, we wake up and, and, uh, Donald Trump's lead has almost evaporated in Georgia. So I, I don't think it's going to change the election, but there are some awfully shady things going on, Tony. Um,
2: I, I agree with that completely. I agree. I, I find it I find people who say that there wasn't some irregularities, that there wasn't at least something that was head-scratching. I wonder if we know anybody like that. I find that to be 100% dishonest. But because there's there's irregularities doesn't mean that there's anything illegal happening. And certainly it doesn't mean that there's anything illegal happening at the level of changing the results of an election. But – Regardless of whether or not, and here's we we you and I kind of argued about this a little bit last week. Regardless of whether or not there's enough evidence to overturn the election, I would like them to get to the bottom of all of this. Even if it doesn't, even if it doesn't end up changing any results, I want them to investigate what why these irregularities happened and if they were. If they were completely explainable, then great. And if not, and if there was some level of fraud, but not the mass level of fraud that it would take to overturn an election, I still think we should get to the bottom of that stuff and do this and do what we can to stamp it out. But I feel like the second December 14th passes and uh, the Trump team can't turn over, you know can't uh, flip this election. They'll just drop the case and whatever fraud may or may not have happened can happen again because we just if we can't win, we don't care. And that's my my biggest problem.
3: And we need to get to the bottom of this, not because, you know, Georgia is going to have another election in two years and four years. We need to get to the bottom of this because we've got an election that's going to determine who leads the Senate on January 5th. And, you know, I stated this, I think, last week that, you know, authorities are saying that Georgia has received the most mail in ballots for a runoff election ever. And uh, we've already seen a lot of smoke that uh, seems to be some cheating involved, and especially with this election, you know that worries me. We need to find out what's going on for this election. How are you that's feeling about January?
2: Uh, we'll 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 get a, a an official update on the president's the latest from the White House, what they the, the latest evidence, if any, that they've presented. Exactly what the president has said and is thinking and uh, the status of all these lawsuits Uh, a little bit later on in the show when we talk to uh, White House correspondent Kristen Daytok. From the Daily Caller. So uh, we'll dive back into that topic a little bit later on when we talk to Christian. He's got great information being right there uh, at the White House in Washington, D.C. So uh, look forward to that conversation. How are you feeling about the um, as, as we get closer and closer to these special elections in Georgia? Uh, <laughs> Donald Trump is in Georgia. Barack Obama is in Georgia. Uh, all the all the money is in Georgia. <laughs> How are you feeling about uh, those elections?
3: I'm feeling uh, anxious, Tony. You know, uh, Lynn Wood, I think that's the attorney's name, and Sidney Powell had a news conference this week where Lynn Wood was basically telling uh, Georgia Republican voters uh, not to come out and vote in the special election if the two candidates didn't uh, call for the resignation of the secretary of state. Um, That's very interesting because this Lynn Wood, people have kind of— investigated his background. He's a Democrat. He's given money to Democrats the last two or three cycles. So it looks like kind of inside self self self-sabotage almost.
2: Yeah, it doesn't make I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. If you are a conservative, then you want the then you want the Republicans to win these races. If you're a liberal, you want the Democrats to win these races and telling people putting ultimatums on when it's okay to go vote for your side is nothing but sabotage. And there's obviously a hidden agenda just below the surface on anybody on either side that's telling people don't vote unless like that's that's always going to be very fishy.
3: Yeah, because this is for all the marbles, you know, I'm not saying anything that any of our listeners haven't heard already. But if Democrats take full control, you're looking at. Uh, two more states probably being added to the union, four more senators. You're looking at four more uh, Supreme Court justices where they can uh, pack the court and can basically be in power forever. So this is, you know, usually you reserve this for presidential elections, but this is the most important election of our lifetime, a special election uh, in Georgia. Yeah. Uh, Let's do this. Let's break a little bit
2: early this segment, and when we get back, we are going to talk to Ken Waller. I believe Ken is a friend of of yours, correct, Chris? He is, and uh, he is
3: an election authority out there in uh, Jefferson County, so you'd be a good person to pick his brain on what's going on. Exactly. That's exactly what I want to
2: do. I want to ask Ken in this next segment if the anecdotal – Evidence. You know, we're not in the courts. We don't know exactly what the Trump team has put in front of judges as far as proof is concerned. We've seen some things like a very uh, eccentric lady that I would not have used as my star witness if I was Rudy Giuliani. But who am I to tell him? Um, but uh, uh you know, the, Tony, the, I
3: think when you have die running down your face during a major news conference, I think you've lost all credibility. You lost I your
2: fastball a bit. I I can't uh yeah. can't yeah, disagree with credibility
3: that. Credibility shot. Yeah. So
2: uh, we'll run. But I want to ask uh, uh, Ken about the the evidence that we have heard and if it adds up for him as an election official, if he thinks that uh, these these stories are accurate and add up to the fraud that the president's team claims it does so we'll do that when we get back don't go anywhere you're listening to the weekend report on 97.1 FM talk
0: his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt and even after band camp he might not be the greatest musician but with the three percent annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account your goal of supporting his dreams thanks for everything mom and dad will always be worth it
5: worker of yours
2: Welcome back to The Weekend Report, 97.1 FM Talk. Tony Colombo here with producer Frank Ladd and my partner Chris Arps. We are having a little bit of trouble connecting with Ken Waller, the uh, Jefferson County elections clerk. So uh, hopefully we will get him for the next segment because, like I just mentioned, I have a lot of questions for him about the validity, his opinion, uh, being someone who works in elections, his his opinion on the evidence and the, you know, the at least anecdotal stories that we've heard from the Trump team, and if he feels like there's a lot of validity there, and there's uh, enough of a case for the president to uh, to overturn some states and maybe even overturn this election. So we'll continue to work on Ken, and hopefully we'll talk to him um, in just a little bit. Uh, Wanted to get – let's move locally here with a couple of stories Uh, while we have a second. Chris, um, there have been four restaurants at my last count that have been shut down by the county health department. One very interesting story was uh, Missouri State Senator Andrew uh, Koenig held a press conference at Satchmo's Bar and Grill. Now, Satchmo's, there's a connection. There's a Weekend Report connection to Satchmo's. Would you Mm. like me to to draw that line for you? Please, because I'm drawing a blank. So, yes, uh, (laughs) our good friend Perry Woods, who is the soundtrack, of course, of the Weekend Report. We play all of Perry's music Every week here on the show, always uh, recommend people to download Perry's music on iTunes, Amazon, just about everywhere you get music. You can find The Woods Experience. Download Perry's music, and if not, download some other local band because you always need to support local music. And Perry and I have been friends for 23 years, something like that. And when Perry and I first met, his one of his regular Weekly performances was always at Satchmo's. So I went to Satchmo's back in the day so many times to watch Perry play and hang out there at the at the bar and watch him play and bring friends and hang out with him after his set. And so many hours of my uh, of my youth when I was when I was a young man. Um, and could stay up <laughs> You're late. Still a young man. Don't <laughs> uh, I would spend at Satchmo's watching Perry Woods, so it, 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 there's a uh, uh, a warm spot in my heart for that for that uh, establishment. So uh, Senator Koenig had a press conference at Satchmo's earlier this week. At this press conference, he introduced legislation that would limit Sam Page's control over the county's COVID response. And then uh, three hours later, the health department showed up and. Shut, shut Satchmo's down. What a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that those two things are connected. Uh, last week on the Dave Glover Show, we talked to the owner of Bartolino's and uh, Chris's at the docket. Uh, Bartolino's South, final destination, OT's Bar and Satchmo's are the four restaurants that have now been shut down by the county health department um, for serving people inside the restaurant during... Um, you know, during the current restrictions. How are you feeling about the county's restrictions and uh, the current state of uh, of St. Louis County and, and Sam Page's plan?
3: Well, I'm angry about the restrictions, Tony, but more than angry, I'm sad. Uh, when you just think about these folks who own these restaurants that put their life savings, that put their blood, sweat and tears into it and to see them being closed by really no fault of their own um, I understand that Sam Page, you know, wants to keep St. Louis County and safe, county and safe and wants to stop the spread of the virus. But to too many people, it just looks like hypocrisy when you see bars and restaurants closed, But you see big box stores and casinos still open. I, I think we could come to some type of compromise or some type of agreement so that we don't put these businesses and these employees out of work. So just a uh, um...
2: Frank just uh, uh, had an update for me. Uh, Bartolino South has actually reopened. They have uh, apologized and went through whatever, whatever process they have to they go through the ring. to reopen. Had to but, kiss the ring. But the I mean, you know, the the point is, yeah. is they were shut no, down. I you know, and um, uh, I look, I am not supportive of anybody breaking the law because they feel like it's not a good law. That is not something I will ever support. However, as uh, as we've talked about in in several of these interviews and, and talked to restaurant and bar owners and things like that, they, they just want a seat at the table because they – which I completely agree with. When you're dark and going out of business and the stores next to you and across the street have their lights on and are full of customers, that's got to be extremely frustrating. Because you're watching other businesses thrive, or not thrive, but at least survive, and you are, it, it you it seemingly have been handpicked randomly to be a place that it's that it's decided uh, does not need to be open, and uh, that is that's very frustrating. It's very frustrating for parents. I can speak very uh, firsthand experience on this one that my kids can, my oldest daughter can go to work. She can go to the grocery store. She can go shopping at Target. She can go to, you know, we, I could take my kids to the hardware store. Not that I take my kids out shopping very often in these conditions, but we can do all of those things, but they can't go to school.
3: And it's equally frustrating, Tony, for these uh, for these employers, because, as I said, they put all their, their life money, their time, their sweat, their blood equity into the business. But also they employ people. You know, your family has a has a business. My family grew up. I grew up my family having businesses. You know, your employees become more than your employees they become your family and you know that the job that you give them takes care of their bills and takes puts puts food on the table so some of these business owners they're not only worrying about themselves but they're also worried about their employees uh livelihood
2: yeah no i i uh, absolutely right i couldn't agree more and 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 this is you've been in politics a long time chris here's one of my and i hope i hope that i'm just a jaded, a a jaded negative person who, you know, is a a pessimist and I'm wrong about this. But whenever I see a politician making decisions like this on either side, the the one even this goes for the politicians that say, keep everything open and keep the keep kids in school. Like Even if you agree with me. I always my default position is always these decisions are made for political reasons, not because their heart is in the right place. Yeah. Again, I hope
3: I'm wrong. But what what do you think? I agree. I mean, the last thing that Sam Page or any of these leaders want is for after COVID passes for their legacy to be. Uh, under this guy's administration, such and such people, many people died. I mean, I think that's what motivates these decisions to, to shut down these businesses. They don't want death death uh, numbers to rise under their administration to, and have them being uh, criticized for that. So what we do is just do the all-ending decision to just close down their businesses.
2: And then how terrible do you look when just story after story about— leaders you know council <laughs> people and and mayors that preach these restrictions and enact these closures
3: you mean continue like the to mayor break... of atlanta going telling people not to uh, leave their house for thanksgiving but he goes to mississippi that was the mayor the, that or, was the or, mayor or of denver that was the mayor of <laughs> denver. no no that was that was that was the uh, not georgia some but some guy in georgia i don't think that was the one
2: well there was okay so the mayor of denver Literally sent out a tweet telling people not to go not to travel. Stay home for Thanksgiving. It's only one year. It's not worth the risk. You know, if you've gotta stay home, if you gotta, you know, if you gotta sit one Thanksgiving out, spend one alone. You know that's still the right thing to do, the safe thing to do. And then two hours later, was at the Denver airport getting on an airplane to go travel and be with his family for Thanksgiving.
3: Yeah, and I got confused. It was the Austin mayor who told the everyone Austin to mayor, yes. while he's in Cabo, he yeah he put <laughs> and out and did the video in Cabo in
2: Cabo. <laughs> I mean, the audacity of these people. Of and then the what? And then the uh, the councilwoman in in California who. Talked about how it, how important it was to close restaurants and talked about how th- the servers were in danger and it was their livelihoods were on the line and they may think, you know, they may think they want to work, but it's not worth their lives because you don't know who's sitting at their tables. And then went to a restaurant after the meeting where she said all that and then at least – at least the denver mayor and the austin mayor and these other leaders have issued apologies and said i made I, I i used bad judgment i shouldn't have done that she doubled down and said well the law i was talking about didn't take place until didn't go into effect until the next day well yeah. coronavirus doesn't know that you can't make this speech about how it it's not it, it, how people shouldn't be in restaurants and they shouldn't be open. And it's you're putting servers at risk by going into these establishments, but then say, oh, but the law didn't go into play into effect until tomorrow. So, um, it, so it just obviously you obviously don't think that you obviously don't think that if you're not doing
3: that. And Tony, do do you see a recurring theme here with these mayors and with these people earlier who were calling for defunding police but wanted private but wanted the police in front of their homes to protect them from the mob? Do you see a recurring theme among all these people?
2: Are you, are you going to say they're all Democrats? Yes, they're all Democrats. <laughs> I just wonder if you if you they're it. all Democrats because they're all because it's the Democrats that are the one that that are enforcing these rules. I'm not sure I would. I agree. And but I agree. But I I'm not sure that Republican if they I've seen plenty of hypocrisy out of the Republican Party, too, is all I'm is all I'm saying. So blatant. And certainly not. I mean, not <laughs> Yeah, not. It's not in the headlines right now, for sure. But uh, I've seen I've seen plenty of hypocrisy in politicians on the either side. But this has been this this display of do what I say, not what I do is has been at a new level it's been it's it's been and and either they either think that they are smarter than us uh somehow immune to this disease or they don't believe it's as serious as they say it is so it's it's one of those things or or what i believe is a combination of all three but it can't be anything else because otherwise you wouldn't be doing it right
3: I agree 100 percent. I don't think that they believe this is as serious as they say. And I think they believe, like most reasonable people believe, that you can't, hide in your house and 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 stay away from people you got to live your life but you've got to take precautions i don't have a problem wearing a mask if someone came up to me and called me a wuss or for uh wearing a mask you know i wouldn't bother me in the least because i don't wear it to try to virtue signal i, I wear to protect myself my wife and protect my uh senior citizen mother who's a cancer survivor right but and i wash my hands and i carry around hand sanitizer i think if you follow simple, safe precautions like that, we can open up our businesses and live our lives.
2: You know, I'm glad you said that because I I think this is really important because if you were to just tune in right now and you have never heard uh, me talk about this issue and you hear me saying that I think that businesses should be open and kids should be in school, then I I could see you making the uh, assumption that, oh, this guy... You know, he he's He's a libertarian. He's one of those guys that doesn't uh, very much libertarian. But he's one (laughs) of those he's one of the he's one of these uh, he's one of these these covid deniers that doesn't uh, believe this disease. And and, you know, it and probably walks around without a mask on and all these things. No, I am a huge supporter of wearing masks. I I judge people in public that aren't wearing masks. I am a big supporter of social distancing. I am a big I we shut down Thanksgiving this year. We we usually have a small Thanksgiving for my family is 15 to 20 people. A normal Thanksgiving is about 30 people. This year Thanksgiving was my we had one. My mom was the only person who is around us all the time. Um you know, one of my kids' primary babysitters. Uh, so who's, she's in your ten-person bubble. Exactly, she's in the bubble, and she's the only one that we were with on Thanksgiving. So we, I, I support all these things. We, we've been, we've limited our travel. We haven't gone grocery shopping or into restaurants or anything. It, it, you know, we've we've limited that by ninety percent in this past year and as everybody knows i am a freak when it comes to washing my hands and sanitizing and and all of that before covid so i believe in all of these things but i believe that that's the way you combat this virus you don't have to put you don't have to put businesses and you don't have to and you don't have to keep kids out of school to properly fight this thing that's yeah. my it's not
3: the bubonic play i can't say it or some or the bubonic plague. It's neither. It's neither one.
2: It's neither the bubot or the bubonic plague.
3: One of those. But I mean, all right, we got to a-
2: we got to take a break. We got to take a break, but uh, we'll see. I, bubonic. Your guess, I
3: said bubon. Your
2: guess is as good as mine. We may talk to Shelby Steele in the next segment. We may talk to Ken Waller. Where it's it's kind of <laughs> fluid right now, but I promise you this: we'll be right fluid. back with more weekend report. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to 971 FM talk. <laughs> Welcome back to The Weekend Report, 97.1 FM Talk. Tony Colombo here with my partner, Chris Arps, and our producer, Frank Ladd. And we got a hold of Ken Waller, Jefferson County elections official, and we are actually going to talk to him next hour. So uh, we will be having that conversation with him get a chance to draw on his expertise and see what he thinks about the president's case, about this, um, about the lawsuits and, you know, somebody who's there, who who's behind the closed doors on election night. I want to know from him if the evidence and the stories that we've heard so far from the president and his team, if uh, they hold water, if he thinks that there's some validity to all of this. Uh, right now, as I mentioned in that last segment, we are going to talk to Shelby Steele. Here's one of the great, things about knowing chris arps chris (laughs) arps chris arps is not famous and he's not a big deal but chris (laughs) arps knows some very famous people and people who are a very big deal and i know shelby's your friend chris yeah you like that (laughs) that was a good one (laughs) thank you so i will uh, allow you i don't think that uh, uh that shelby Steele needs an introduction but uh please uh introduce your friend to the audience
3: Well, I just want to say we're very pleased to have Dr. Shelby Steele on to talk about his new uh, documentary, Who Killed What Killed Michael Brown? And he really needs no introduction. He's an Emmy Award winning documentary filmmaker. He's a book critic award winner, and uh, he's just very well known. And uh, Dr. Steele, thank you for being with us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me today.
3: (laughs) Is your lovely is your lovely wife Rita near you?
1: She's not too far away. No, she's. Uh, Tell
3: her I said hello, please.
1: I will. I will do that, and the same to your lovely wife as well. Mm-hmm. Doctor Steele, we have to. Go ahead, sir. <clears throat> we have to get a chance to see you. Yes, if COVID,
3: we can ever get this COVID thing
1: knocked out. That's right. That's right. It's, uh, it's uh, something else.
2: So, uh, Doctor Steele, obviously, the latest documentary, uh, "What Killed Michael Brown." Uh, Made a lot of uh, headlines right before the election. Um, Can you tell us about the inspiration to make that documentary and then also tell us about uh, the challenges that you faced whenever it was released?
1: uh yeah I think you know uh, the many 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 people were were fascinated by the whole Michael Brown incident, and uh we were as well um but we felt that the that uh the real story hadn't been told i guess that's mm-hmm. what everybody feels before they they start something they've they're going to un- uh, unveil the real story and uh, but that is in a sense what we wanted to do and um uh, what interested me was the, the fact that in the, the terrible, tragic death of this young man, um, there it, it triggered a, a power struggle uh, in the community and all across America, if not the world. Uh, and, and it made the point that when blacks are victimized by racism, all sorts of possibilities and power emerge out of incidents like that uh, and so we wanted to the, the, the Michael Brown story was so vivid we, we thought it was a good a good opportunity to, to look at the way power works in that around race in America. Uh, when we finished it and we were it, it was about to be released um, and Amazon had pretty much accepted it and was going to stream it uh and then sort of out of the blue we get a letter saying that that it had been uh uh canceled and so we we sort of knew we were and we kind of almost expected to be in the caught up in this sort of uh cancel culture as mm. they as they call it um and i think very it was a stroke of luck i write for the wall street journal often uh they sort of picked this up as a cause celeb and uh, wrote a couple of editorials about it and embarrassed Amazon. <laughs> uh, and so then out of the blue we get a call from an executive in, at uh, Amazon telling us that they had made a mistake. They were uh, huh. Huh. they were sorry. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> they wanted to begin to stream the film right away. What and, was their
2: uh, reason, the initial reason, that they gave you for going back on their word and deciding not to air it or or make it available to the public, did they claim that it was fraudulent in some way? What was the reason that they they changed no. their mind?
1: No, they they uh, it met all of their criteria. Hmm. It, it uh, they, they never ever said, but they in their first uh, letter, a rejection letter, they were emphatic. There, let me. There was a note of hatred in their tone. Of real uh, moral outrage. Don't uh, think you can change the title and resubmit this. Don't um, uh, again some other admonition about about reapproaching them or asking them to to second guess themselves and that, that this was an absolute definitive rejection and we should not entertain any hope at all of changing it or altering it or doing anything else uh, in hopes of getting it accepted. Wow. So it was the, the tone of the letter was just was remarkable
4: talking uh, to
1: in itself,
2: talking to Shelby Steele, author, filmmaker, Emmy award winner. Go ahead, Chris,
3: Dr. Steele. There were two themes that I took away from the documentary. And uh, one was uh, you, where you were saying that institutional racism has become a tactic and I think one of the taglines from the movie was,
1: where the truth became a lie.
3: Mm. Um, can you expound on those two themes?
1: Uh, sure, I can. Uh, the first one, remind me again. You, oh,
3: uh, ex- uh, institutional racism beca- has become a tactic. Yes, that,
1: has a okay. tactic, yeah. yes institutional racism, another fra- phrase for it is systemic racism. Is probably even more popular these yes. days. Um, these are exaggerations. They are, what is systemic racism? Uh, you know, I grew up in the, in the 40s and the 50s. I know racial discrimination and racism. I know all about it. Uh, when you say systemic racism, I smell a certain corruption. And I think what's happening there is that you, groups like Black Lives Matter and so forth want desperately to see themselves as authentically black. And if you want to be authentically black, you can't be fighting some little minor. Racism can't be a minor, small thing. It's got to be a vast, systemic thing so that your your militancy uh, now can match the militancy of blacks in the past. And you can be authentically black. You can be rather than thinly, mildly black, you can be the real deal. Uh, and I think that's what's this, what this, this exaggeration of racism is all about. It's about, it's about young, the younger generation of black Americans wanting to be authentically black and thereby having to invent a racism that's much bigger than racism actually is in order to achieve that, that authenticity.
3: Chris, I'll let you go. Okay, uh, Dr. Steele, I, uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, Dr. Walter Walter Williams? I think he was a colleague of yours there at the oh, Hoover Institute, boy. and uh, he How much recently time do passed. Have? I'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> you have about
1: five uh, minutes.
2: Take all of it that you need.
3: <laughs> <laughs> talk no, about Walter what a great, Williams, giant he was. Yes,
1: yeah, he was. Walter Williams was truly a giant. There is. Um, Uh, He, uh, I'm blessed to be able to say he was a friend of mine, uh, and some of the best best times I've had in my my life have been with him and Tom Sowell uh, over dinner, uh, both fascinating men. But Walter is uh, just one of these extremely self-made men. Um, Came from a poor background um, in Philadelphia, uh, made himself, went through the military, uh, got a PhD, became a, 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 a academic a economist. Um, but the the thing about Walter that inspired me, as somebody who just knew him personally, was that he was always himself. He wasn't. Uh, he was not. Um, most of us sort of look for cues in the world, and and uh, do I think this or do I think that, and how many other people think this and think. Walter didn't do it that way. He sort of just looked nakedly at reality and he was himself. whatever response came up, he took seriously. So the result was he was always unique. Mm-hmm. He didn't repeat himself. He he there was always something new, some new way of of seeing the world. Um and uh what a treasure uh he he was. Um uh, i'm the work i'm doing now i'm looking at the, the matter of of race and individualism, and uh Walter is number one exhibit a of the power of individualism how that how transformative it is how it it really can make for for great great changes and great societies always make room for individuals for unique people um well, that was Walter. So he I was—he was unique.
2: I would like to uh, direct everyone to Randy Tobler's show. Doctor Randy Tobler has a show on this radio station that uh, airs every Saturday morning at six a.m. and he interviewed Walter Williams some time back and replayed that archived interview earlier this morning, which is ironic to the conversation that we're having. So, you know, I always Uh tell people if they miss our conversations to go back and download the podcast of this show. I would encourage everybody to go back and download the podcast of Randy's show that aired earlier this morning and um, hear that interview with uh, Walter himself. It's uh, amazing that we, uh, you know, just comes full circle in in this discussion here. Uh, Dr. Steele, I wanted to ask you, so... I, I spent a lot of time in Ferguson um, during the Michael Brown tragedy. Everything surrounding it, before the trial, after the or a, before the the verdict was dis- decided, after it was decided. Um, for this radio station, I was down there a lot covering uh, what was happening. And uh, mm-hmm. Chris and I are, are good friends with the former mayor of Ferguson, and the uh, mayor has been on this show many many times, and. There is was a lot of times that I would spend hours, a whole night down there, covering, uh, you, you know, th- the things that were happening, and then I would come home and turn on the television and see how the media was portraying what was happening, and it was like two different things. I, I, I think I was thinking about, I would come home and go. I was just there. I know what, what what's happening, and what they're saying is not is not an accurate portrayal of that. When you were putting together mm-hmm. this documentary. What was it did anything stand out to you as far as being um the the truth was completely different than the the story or the the narrative that had been told by the media
1: oh absolutely I think that's one of the main points of of our film uh is that what almost instantly began to emerge uh, on the, the moments after the shooting itself uh, was what we call a poetic truth, uh, as opposed to the objective truth, the real truth that, that you witnessed when you were there on the scene and so forth. There was another truth that was, that was spreading out across the whole world, really. And that truth was that Michael Brown was a victim a black, young black victim of white racism, of therefore symbolically of the whole history of American racism. And that therefore power redounded to people who took that point of view, took that poetic truth as though and argued that it was the real truth, that he was a victim of racism. He was, as, as you probably know, he was not a victim of racism. There is no evidence to suggest that um it's not to say that there's no racism in the world but uh, the this to, to massage this event so that it looks like it looked like uh this this poor teenage kid was completely innocent uh, but was victimized by an evil white policeman uh, that poetic truth um was a narrative of for power a way of 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 gaining power it 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 And so it it exploited this event as a means to power. And so that, I think, is why it it exploded and became so big, is because there was so much power to be had there. Black Lives Matter is a group that now dominates in America. It started there, and it didn't actually start there, but it sort of got itself well organized in Ferguson. Um, So there was this. The poetic truth follows power. It doesn't follow truth. Mm. It doesn't follow reality. It follows power. And the power was he was a victim of racism.
2: The uh, unfortunate uh, truth of this segment right now is we are almost out of time. I wish that we could continue this conversation, Dr. Steele, and I wish that uh, I hope that we get another chance to talk again really soon. Only about 60 seconds left. Chris, do you have a final thought for uh, Dr. Steele before we let him go?
3: Yeah, the one thing that I really enjoyed about this film, you know, when you talk about this story about Michael Brown it's a tragedy it's a, it's a documentary that you think that would make you angry that would make you sad and it and it does that to a certain extent but the thing that i liked about it is it was uplifting later um Dr. Steele and his son mm-hmm. and his wife they interviewed people within the black community that were uh, taking off the shackles of victimization and wanted to uplift and uh, uplift their own people. And Dr. Steele gave a history of how black people were very self-reliant until the uh, LBJ J days. So at the beginning, it's kind of discouraging when you see uh, the the lie being played out again. But at the end, it gave gave me a real sense of hope.
1: Yeah, that is. Well, that's uh, music to my ears. I, I, we we try, We certainly tried to do that, and <laughs> it did. Uh, it was
3: very uplifting.
1: Yeah. At the end. Well, yeah. and I
2: think well, thank it's something you. that everybody uh, should go out. Anybody that has interest in this in this issue in that moment in history, which I think is just about everybody that's listening, uh, should go out and check out the documentary. Dr. Shelby Steele. Once again, thank you so much for your time, sir. I hope we get a chance to talk again soon.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. You bet. Thank you, Dr. Steele.
3: All right,
2: we got to wrap up our number one of the weekend report, but we have an entire second hour coming up. We'll talk to White House correspondent Christian Daytalk when we get back. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to 97.1 FM Talk.
0: Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details.
6: As we turn the corner into the new year, a lot of people are looking to get healthier. That's code H-E-R-O-10 for 10% off at Hero.co.
3: It's time for your favorite
7: show. The Weekend Report is on the radio.
2: Indeed, The Weekend Report is on your radio. Thank you so much, Perry Woods. This is the second hour of The Weekend Report. A uh, Very powerful first hour there, especially that last segment with Dr. Shelby Steele. Chris, that was, um, uh, we, that was a pretty long interview, and I felt like we were just getting started. I could have done another 30 minutes with Dr. Steele and would have probably still had more questions.
3: I had plenty of questions, you know, because we really did barely scratch the scratch of the scratch to get into the movie. It's about two hours, about an hour and a half long, but it's just it's a powerful movie. And I uh, recommend any but all people out in our audience to uh, to uh, check it out. It's like five bucks to download it from Amazon. Yeah what killed michael brown excellent it's worth the money
2: yeah go out and check that out and if you just if you missed that discussion that we just had with uh Dr. Shelby Steele make sure you check it out on our podcast of course you can get the weekend report podcast anywhere that you get podcasts but i recommend the radio.com app because it's one-stop shopping for the whole station you can stream the station 24/7 you can rewind live radio and you can download the podcast of this and every other show all right there on the Radio.com app for free. Uh, coming up a little bit later this hour, I mentioned uh, we played a little phone tag in the first hour with Ken Waller from Jefferson County. He's an election official down there in Jefferson County. We're going to talk to him a little bit later this hour. Right now, back on the show, uh, great to speak with Christian Daytalk, the senior White House correspondent from the Daily Caller. Returns of the Weekend Report. And now, Chris, I'm going to make an announcement. Uh ah, not only roll, I'm going we're going I'm going to give Christian a new title that he can put on his business card and and his resume and he can use his uh uh you know to 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 boost his uh his career. He is now officially the weekend report senior White House correspondent as well. It's congratulations official. Christian. So Christian Daytalk joins us now the senior White House correspondent for the Weekend Report,
8: Christian. How's it going, buddy? Well, I'm, I'm great, guys. I was not expecting this. This is a huge honor. I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, listen, we
2: appreciate your time uh, coming back on the show. Uh, it's great to get insight from you, right? You, you know, being there at the White House in Washington, D.C., uh, you know, you, you turn on the television, you hear a lot of people saying a lot of things about the president's legal team, his various lawsuits. Uh, before we dive into any specifics, can you just tell us what is the latest? What is the, the latest statement from the White House, from the president as far as the progress of these lawsuits? And if he still is, is as confident as ever that he indeed has the proof to change the results of a presidential election.
8: Yeah, well, I think the president, uh, at least publicly, is maintaining the line that uh, he's absolutely confident that if we go through and and audit those battleground states, uh, that that he will emphatically win the 2020 election, that he'll be beating Joe Biden by more votes than uh, Joe Biden appears to be leading Trump by. I'm I'm seeing a little bit of of, uh, splintering, to be honest, within the administration not necessarily amongst the legal team, but we saw Alyssa Farah, who's the White House Communications Director, or I guess I should say she was the White House Communications mm-hmm. Director, she resigned on Thursday, and she was really the uh, the first sort of crown in the armor of this unified trust that the administration has been presenting, because, you know, if you're uh, a senior official at the White House and you're expecting your guy to win again, you don't usually resign right after the election, so... That was a big indicator that, uh, you know, the writing might be on the wall a little bit, but as far as the campaign's efforts actually go, they just put out fundraising numbers yesterday and they pulled in something like $207 million since election night. So, uh, they are going strong. It doesn't show any signs of stopping at this point. Of course, the electoral college vote is coming up in about a month at at this point. So we might have an answer sooner than later, but, uh, I think uh, at least if you ask President Trump, you ask Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, uh, they're, they're, they think the sky is the limit and that this legal effort is going to be fruitful.
2: Talking to White House correspondent Christian Daytok. Go ahead, Chris.
3: Christian, Chris Sarfs, uh, Alyssa Farah, didn't she accept a judge clerkship that she had been putting off for some time? I think that's the reason she says she's saying why she left.
8: So I'm, I, I spoke to Lisa briefly yesterday. That did not come up necessarily, but uh, she had, I know, uh, uh, had reached out to a talent agent actually about possibly trying to hook up a, a TV job for her next mm. gig. But the official line from the White House is that she is launching her, her own uh, communications firm. Mm. They're going to be specializing in conservative politics and defense. Uh, before she joined the White House again, she was the, spokesperson over at the Pentagon, so she certainly has experience in that front. But, no, I I had not heard that line, Chris, about that being the specific reason why she was leaving the White House.
3: Tony, that wasn't my question. Go for it. (laughs) No, no, Christian, what I wanted to ask you, you know, you're at the White House, you kind of you know, get to know these people, get a rapport with them. What's the general mood of the, yeah. the the people there in the White House? Are they putting up a brave front, but they know it's over, or do they believe that the president will prevail? What would you say is the overall mood? Are they secretly uh, in the West are they wing?
2: secretly packing their their <laughs> bags, but like not showing it to anybody? As they're doing- <laughs> well,
8: I wouldn't say secretly packing their bags yet because the. Well, I guess I'll start with, with your question directly. I, I think most of the staff are sort of accepting the fact that uh, Joe Biden is going to be sworn in on January 20th. There are certain members of the senior staff who are, you know, maintaining that uh, the president will be, more, or you know, will be joining us again live for a second term. But that being said, there's still a lot of policy objectives that these guys are trying to accomplish in the final month and a half or so. Uh, you look at what he was doing. Uh, heaving President Trump on prescription drug prices last week. That's been a, a mainstay of his objectives since entering office back in 2017. We know the president is trying to withdraw troops from Afghanistan, Iraq, and Somalia before he leaves office. There's a whole bunch of other issues, like immigration. He's being pressed by some of the hardliners on immigration to do something about birth rate citizenship. So I don't think the staff is necessarily packing up quite yet they're still staying very busy but i think that most of the uh the junior level staffers at the least are quietly sort of Hmm. putting the feelers out there and trying to you know line something up for where they can land after january 20th i think at this point most people are recognizing that uh president donald trump won't be in the white house again until 2024 uh, (laughs) assuming he does run and win right
2: right Uh, Do you have you've been given any timeline or have a sense of a timeline for the the full-blown presentation from the Trump legal team? Because I think we've all kind of been waiting, you know, a lot of people on the right at least have given the president the benefit of the doubt and said, look, you have the right to do this in the court system, you have the time to present whatever case you need to present. But by mid-December, I think it's December 14th or whatever, whenever the uh, votes have to be certified, that's kind of the unofficial deadline for this thing. That's right around the corner at this point. Do you have a, any sense of a timeline on when the, the the Trump team is going to present every bit of evidence that they have?
8: Well, I think they're going to be presenting new evidence as long as they get it up until that date. But if you would ask Rudy Giuliani or Jen Ellis, they would say that evidence is already out there. Uh, I, I agree with you, Tony. It, it doesn't really seem like the, the full-on smoking gun has been presented during these hearings that Mayor Giuliani has been having in Michigan, in Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania. So uh, I'm, I'm not really sure how long they keep this up. I mean, you have to take into account the reporting that Mayor Giuliani is sort of taking this this bit of uh, legal theatrics as a push to get a preemptive pardon for any indictment he might be facing. So, I mean, I, I think he's going to be doing this up until the state certifies, certified, possibly even after. Uh, there certainly is a strong contingent of the Trump supporters who I think will never accept the fact that Joe Biden won the election and the campaign itself. Is probably going to be mobilizing on that, trying to carry the energy over into the president's next run. So I don't know if there's ever going to be a formal stop date where they say uh, we're giving up on this legal effort. It might just sort of parlay into a campaign part two or part three, even, uh, which could last for the next three years, really.
2: We're talking to Christian Daytalk, the senior White House correspondent from The Daily Caller. Go ahead, Chris. Oh.
3: Christian, a couple of days ago, reports leaked out about a potential pay-for-pardon scandal. Uh, no one within the White House was implicated in this scandal, but uh, this just broke. Do you have you heard anything else on this? Do you have any more information to report? And for our listeners that may not uh, be up to speed, tell them a little bit about what uh, what happened or what's being alleged.
8: Yeah, sir. Cert- certainly. So the, the the Justice Department is investigating. An attempt to funnel money to, um, I guess we'll just call them individuals uh, surrounding the White House, people who are have the president's ear, people who can convince him to hand out these final day pardons. Now, I've heard, actually, that Bernie Carrick, who himself was the recipient of a presidential pardon, uh, former New York City police chief and, um, you know, a, a longtime ally of Mayor Giuliani, President Trump, the whole shebang event. He, he actually got Rob his part or his commutation, rather, earlier this year. I've heard his name tossed around, but I haven't heard anything conclusive that would identify him as the subject of this DOJ probe. And what's interesting about this story is that the White House liaison who was installed at the Justice Department something like five or six months ago, earlier in 2020, was actually just totally banned from the building for trying to get inside intel on this investigation and other investigations and then funnel it back to the White House. So we're getting a little bit of added drama in these final days. (laughs) I'd be lying if I said, you know, 2020 is going to end with a bribery pardon scandal plaguing the Trump administration. But uh, I guess, you know, no rest for the wary. We're going to be running this one down for every headline we can get out of it. I'm the Trump January administration 20th. and
3: drama say
2: it isn't so. Yeah, no kidding. We could expect nothing less. Chris, these are the advantages of having our own senior White House correspondent uh, that works exclusively with the show, is that we get that inside information uh, like that. Uh, so, Better believe yeah, it. Yeah, that's great stuff. Christian, have you um, have you guys heard anything from the Biden communications team As far as any changes that may take place with the way that they handle the press or anything that would change with, uh, you know, the the press conferences or anything. Has that any of that communication started with uh, with you guys that are there at the White House every day in in the press pool? Um, Or is it is is it still too early uh, to be getting any of those signals from the Biden team?
8: Well, those those talks are certainly starting, and we're seeing the transition team have, uh, at the very least, weekly press conferences. They had one earlier today on Friday. It's always around lunchtime, in which they give the updates on what's happening with the transition process. Uh, we also know that Joe Biden's landing team is now communicating with uh, Anthony Fauci and other members of the coronavirus task force. I would keep an eye on what's happening with the task force, with the vaccine push, because I would suspect that's where the majority of these press conferences are going to be occurring, is is talking about these issues. And Jen Psaki, who Joe Biden just announced is going to be his White House press secretary, she has a history uh, of working at the White House. We can expect this press organization to look basically exactly like the Obama White House did. That means no leaks. That means they're going to limit media access to all of the principals, including Joe Biden, Because, you know, let's let's be honest, we can say what you want about President Trump's tweets, but he himself was probably out there significantly more than any president in modern history. Haley McEnany certainly was out there doing press conferences more often than any press secretary in recent memory. So I think it might seem like the access to the White House is shrinking, at least from a public standpoint. But in reality, it's just going to be lining up more with what the White House normally does. In terms of communicating with
2: the public, only a couple minutes left here with Christian Day. Talk, you got one more for him, Chris.
3: I do, Christian. Talk about uh, John Durham being turned made into a special prosecutor with this uh, Russian collusion investigation. How important is that going
8: to be in uh, in the upcoming administration? <laughs> Yeah, so this one actually, for Trump supporters at least, is a little bit of sugar to help uh, the bad-tasting medicine of of an election loss go (laughs) down. (laughs) Uh, We know that Bill Barr is tapped Durham to be the special counsel in this investigation into the origin of the Russia probe. Now, this is important. Sorry if you guys can hear that. I'm actually walking back from the White House (laughs) to my apartment. D.C. traffic uh, (laughs) surprisingly is still a thing. Yeah. See, but all the good reason,
2: things about having reason, our own White House correspondent right there. That's
8: right. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the reason it's important that Durham is a special counsel is it means he can continue his investigation unimpeded. And he's going to be. Oh, yeah. No, problem. No worries. I'm on the radio right now. But I'll talk to you later. Passes by in, in D.C. I love live that's radio. That's excellent. But, uh, that's awesome. No, but. Basically, the special prosecutor, the special counsel cannot be fired by the Justice Department. Uh, he has to conclude his investigation. So whether or not he you know, finds dirt on Joe Biden, I don't suspect that to be the case. Uh, we're going to see this thing through the conclusion. And it seems like he is actually trying to put the FBI's counsel, uh, Kevin Kleinsmith, in jail for altering those FISA applications. So keep your eyes peeled. Hopefully that thing resolves itself. Sooner than later, but there might actually be a little bit of closure after uh, these years of wondering about what happened hmm. with Operation Crossfire Hurricane.
2: Christian, we got to well, yeah, wrap stuff. this up. If people want to continue to follow what you're working on there, what's the best way to do so? Website, social media, all that good stuff.
8: Make sure you guys go check out The Daily Caller as always and follow me on Twitter and Instagram. It's at talk Radio at POC. Radio. Thanks again for having me, guys. You bet.
2: And Christian, you be- before you go, I want to I want to clear this up uh, with this uh, promotion oh, to so senior sorry. White I'm House gonna... court. Well, careful there. <laughs> <laughs> with, with this promotion to a senior White House correspondent for the Weekend Report, the compensation for that is simply the prestige and the reputation that comes along with it. This can't is, put a price on that. Yeah, there's, this is not a, this back. is an unpaid <laughs> position, but you understand. I mean, it, it benefits you in other ways. So. Just, to, just to just to clear that up for you,
8: <laughs> guys. I'm not in it for the money. I'm in it for the people. I appreciate the promotion. We'll see you guys later. Thank you so Thanks, much, Christian. Christian. We'll good, talk to you. We'll we talk think. to
2: you soon. That is the senior White House correspondent for the Daily Caller, Christian like Day Talk. Yeah, great stuff from from Christian. All right, we need to take a quick break, and when we get back, we will talk to Jefferson County elections official Ken Waller on the Weekend Report, 97.1 FM Talk.
5: Just do a quick search for Tecovas on social media and you'll see how adorably styled these boots can be. Visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com and point your toes west.
7: I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is my show. My friends come on and you know them. We talk about the sports you care about. Basketball now, golf and the metronome of your life. Baseball.
2: Welcome back to The Weekend Report, 97.1 FM Talk. Tony Colombo here with producer Frank Ladd and my partner Chris Arps. Big thank you to Christian Daytalk uh, from the White House, House, senior White House correspondent for The Daily Caller and The Weekend Report now. That's what I've uh, decided. He's now our (laughs) senior White House correspondent. He joined us in that last segment. Uh, Great update from him. Also, a little bit earlier, we talked to Shelby Steele. If you missed anything on today's show, make sure you go back and check it out on the podcast. And... We now have uh, tracked down Ken Waller from Jefferson (laughs) County. Uh, Chris, introduce our guest. I'd
3: like to introduce you to the, I probably will screw up his official title, but he is the election authority in Jefferson County, Ken Waller. And as a disclaimer, Ken, my wife is the treasurer of his leadership pack. Ken, how are you?
7: Hey, I'm doing good, Chris. and Tony. How are you guys doing today? Yeah,
3: great Excellent. to
2: great to talk with you, Ken. Got a lot of of questions for you. First of all, I'll, I should let you know that uh, I have married into the Jefferson County uh, community. <laughs> my wife and my in laws. My wife uh, is from Jefferson County, and my in laws are still down there. And I spend a lot of time down there with uh, her family. And uh, Sheriff Dave Marshak from Jefferson County, the sheriff down there in Jefferson County, is a good friend of mine as well. So um, a big fan of your area and appreciate uh, your time today.
7: Yeah, I'm glad you guys had me on.
2: You bet. So be, being there in the front lines, you know, of working in elections, first of all, how long how long have you been doing this? and uh and explain what your responsibilities when it comes to elections in Jefferson County what exactly are are, are your responsibilities?
7: Sure, Tony uh, well uh, initially for the for the last eight years before this before this position, I was a county executive and I chose to uh, you know kind of just sit back and, and let somebody else take the reins of that it's a pretty demanding job so this the uh, county clerk's position was up for re-election and and basically the majority of the functions in this position is elections. We do some other things like taking bids. Uh, We do the uh, BOE stuff, Board of uh, Equalization. We also do all the notaries. They come to our office. So there's other functions of the office, but I would say about 75% of the functions of the people that work in the office and myself is focusing on elections. I've been doing it now. This this is the end of my second year.
2: So when you look at, we can dive into some specifics in in a minute, but when you look Watch the news and you see the president and his legal team and the accusations that he's making and, you know, the, the bits of evidence and sort of anecdotal stories that have been told from your from your standpoint of being somebody who works in elections, has been in the back rooms on election night. Does it add up? Does it seem possible or does it seem far fetched?
7: Well, I mean, it's not impossible, Tony. Um, And I know that part of the problem they talked about was this equipment or this company, Dominion. I don't know if that's the equipment, the name of the the, the position, you know, the stuff that they use. But Dominion, you know, I know they've had some problems with it. We do not use Dominion. So, you know, is it it a potential or possibility of that happening? Sure. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say that it's not. But I think to the degree that potentially, you know, President Trump has talked about it, I just have a hard time believing it would be enough to change the results of the election. But is it possible? It sure is possible.
3: Go ahead, Chris. Ken, what was the overall voter turnout in uh, Jefferson County? And what was your uh, mail-in ballot count? Was it really above normal? And how did you safeguard to make sure that there wasn't any uh, phony baloney business, monkey business going on with the uh, mail-in ballots? How do you safeguard that?
7: OK, so we'll, we'll go three. We'll go with three questions. I'll answer each one. <laughs> did I, get, I didn't know there was
3: three questions in there. <laughs> well, I
7: think there was. But yeah, I you, yeah, you know. You had to those those up there, Chris. Uh, that's the first question was, what was the percentage of voters that voted in the election? It was a little over 73 percent. That was the total vote count for the whole election. You had you got to remember, not only did you have mail in ballots, but you had all the absentee ballots with covid reason and so on. So we didn't have uh, a whole lot of what we call mail in ballots. Uh, but we had uh, over, we had, see, we had probably 8,000 people um, come in uh, to our offices and our satellite offices. And we had probably another 13,000 that went uh, and voted by mail. So, uh, you know, which is a pretty good percentage. That's obviously far bigger than we've ever had before. And, you know, what we have, uh, Tony and Chris, we have a bipartisan team that comes in and then they look over the absentee ballots. So that's an absentee team. So, we have a Republican and Democrat uh, together. Uh, I think this year we actually had like eight or nine teams of those, so I, I feel real comfortable. You know, they check, make sure everything looks right, the signatures, if everything is uh, correct on there. Of course, we have the signatures in our computers of the person's signatures. So if we think there's a you know a forgery or something you know cr- crazy going on, we we address it. Uh, we didn't have any of those issues this year, but you just never know when something like that can happen. But we. Uh, we felt very uh, good uh, that, you know, all the votes that should have been counted were counted and then they were the proper they were properly done.
2: Can another thing that has been that I've heard a lot of supporters of the president say harp on is that there's a correlation you, that the president, if he. We know that he gained ground. He had record—he increased on a record turnout of African-American males. He doubled his support in African-American females. He increased his record support in Latinos and the LGBTQ community. And all of these things, they say you can't do all of those things and still lose the election. Do you—does that math make sense to you? Does that correlation—does that line run as solid— as, the, as, as that theory states it does?
7: Well, let's, let's, let's go a little bit further, Tony. Let's look at the thing, that if the numbers increase in all those areas. Here's the thing, and actually I was talking to a friend of mine this morning about this. What I think happened was there was an, uh, an increasing number of new registered voters. I mean, uh, you know, high, high amounts. And I would believe a lot of those registered voters probably voted for, for Democrats or for Biden. That's just my guess. You had a lot of young kids. Uh, you have, you just had a lot of people that typically don't vote in, in a normal election. So, you know, in my way of thinking, not Jefferson County in Missouri wasn't this way, but my way of thinking, you know, they had record numbers of, you know, registered voters across the nation. And I think that that had a lot to do with it because you're just talking about sheer large numbers. Mm-hmm. and. You know, we're we're talking about you know what six million votes a differential, but it's really in those key battleground states that we're talking about. The electoral college is what it's all about, anyhow. And I'm just not right. for sure what happened in those in those states where Trump, you know, didn't do as well, even though his numbers in certain uh, in certain areas, be it you know, African American women or men or whomever, uh, I, I don't know exactly how that computes, but you know you have to win those states uh, those bet those keep out of round states. Yeah,
2: only got a couple minutes here left with Ken Waller, Jefferson County uh, elections official. Let's try to rapid fire a couple more here, Chris, go ahead.
3: Ken, hypothetically because I know you're an elected official and you you don't can't be too political in this in regarding this. But if you sure. had to give advice to the president's lawyers regarding trying to overturn this election or have, you know, the 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 result be what we want it to be. What advice would you give some of, give the attorneys being an election official?
7: Well, I, Chris, it's a good question, but I think they're doing everything they got. He's surrounded with some of the best people, some of the best attorneys, and and I think they're doing everything they can. They may just not be able to do anything else, you know? I mean, you know, if they don't win in some of these states, if they don't win some of these court battles, then, you know, it's not going to come, it's not going to turn out well for the president. So I don't think there's any advice that I could give him to do is just that he's got the greatest people around he can get, and just let them do their jobs and see what happens.
2: Ken, before we let you go, um, let me ask you this: just an just a multiple choice question. Looking at <laughs> just looking at the election, what happened on election night? Would you say a there was maybe a a <laughs> tiny bit of of fraud or whatever illegal votes cast? But that kind of happens and slips through the cracks in every election. B, there was a moderate amount of funny business, but not enough to overturn the election. Or C, there's the massive amount of fraud that the president w- and his team says there is. Or
3: I D, oh, B. hell yeah, there was a lot of fraud. <laughs> I, I,
7: I, I, honestly, I, I honestly believe it would be B. Yeah. I believe there's a, quite a bit of it you know, in a lot of different areas, but I don't believe it's uh, – I don't believe it's going to be enough to make the decision uh, to make a to make the thing change. I do. Right. I don't believe that personally.
2: Well, Ken, we really appreciate your insight. And as this Thanks, thing Ken. progresses, uh, hopefully, we'll get a chance to check in with you again and uh, and uh, and draw on your expertise one more time. Thanks, Ken. All right, let's take a quick break, and we've got more weekend report coming up next. <laughs> segment to go this week. If you missed anything from today's show, make sure you go back and check it out. A lot of great information from great guests. Today, we just talked to Ken Waller, uh, elections official there in Jefferson County. Before that, we talked to Christian Daytok, the senior White House correspondent for The Daily Caller. And in the first hour of today's show, we talked to Dr. Shelby Steele, an incredible discussion with Dr. Steele um, about his Documentary that you can see on uh, Amazon about Michael Brown. The Name of that documentary is "What Killed Michael Brown," and just a great discussion with Doctor Steele. If you missed any of it, make sure you go back and check out the podcast. Been a pretty, uh, pretty packed show, Chris. Let's see if we can limp across the finish line.
3: Hey, hey Tony, mm-hmm. I think uh, Doctor Steele raised our IQ points a couple, I... couple scores a couple points for maybe definitely for me because. <laughs>
2: He is a he's a brilliant man and he, he has insight like no other and is very good at communicating his um, his points so great stuff from dr. Steele and Christian Daytalk and Ken Waller again if you missed any of it download our podcast anywhere you get podcasts but I would recommend the radio.com app. Uh, my name is Tony Colombo. Here with uh, Chris Arps and Frank Ladd. Got a couple more stories I wanted to touch on with you guys before we wrapped things up. Wanted to get your thoughts on um, a couple of sports stories last week. Mizzou uh, played Vanderbilt, and Vanderbilt's kicker was a female soccer player, and I thought it was a I thought it was a super cool moment. Um, I don't know. I know she was supposed to play this weekend. That I don't know if as you're hearing this, the game that Vanderbilt was supposed to play against Georgia has happened or hasn't happened yet, but I know that she was uh, listed on the depth chart as Vanderbilt's only kicker for this game against uh, a top-10 team in Georgia. Pretty cool moment, but uh, kind of got ruined by some of the uh, people on both sides, the, the media and some people that were gushing – All over her. And then, of course, on the other side, people that were trying to downplay the story at all. Did you guys, uh, Chris, did you have any reaction to, for the first time ever, a a female competed in a power conference college football game?
3: Yeah, great story. And it was in
2: Missouri, too, which is so cool.
3: Yeah. Great story. Next. The same with the story that Joe Biden is going to have the first or have an all-female communication shop. Great story. Next. So you I'm say- just so sick of all these firsts and all that. You know, this it, it, – it exasperates me. That's all I can say, Tony. <laughs> I'm just tired of it. Go ahead, Frank.
4: Yeah, let's not talk about Neil Armstrong anymore.
3: You know what I'm saying, Frank. <laughs> we're, 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 we're at the point I- now where – this person is notable because they were the first left-handed Jamaican uh basketball player who was born on a full moon I mean that's the way it's getting now with these first
2: so here's my they,
3: it's, it's lost they've lost their meaning to me here was my thing
2: I thought it was a cool moment and it was something that I went out of my way to see I wanted to see this happen because I felt like it was you know it, it I don't. The word "historical" is is a bit strong, but I yeah, thought but it is. I thought technically it
4: was, it's historic
2: because it, it never was, happened before. I thought it was meaningful, so um, I for wanted about ten seconds. So I wanted to see it, but then afterwards, you know, she was named the SEC <laughs> special teams player of the week, which is ridiculous. Um, it, it would be ridiculous for anybody who just who kicked off one time and did nothing else. And then, you know, and then that and then the gushing on on the media by the media then uh, provokes the the bigots on the other side that want to, you know, insult her because it was a it was a squib kick instead of a, a standard kick. And I just I feel like I feel like we we have these cool moments. And we can just we can just just agree on this is a cool moment. It doesn't. Ha- I I agree. I understand what you're saying, Chris, and I agree with that. That we act like the first because you know if she kicks now she'll be she'll be the first female to kick in a game with a team in the top ten. Yeah. And, may, and if they play Alabama, it'll be the first time a female kicker ever <laughs> played in a game that was the number one team in the nation. So I I, under, I agree with that. Uh, to an, I, I agree with that to an extent. But I, I do feel like it was still something that was cool and had some meaning behind it. And then we just we just ruin it. We just, you know, we either overreact or underreact and just can't just accept that it was a it was a cool moment and move on.
3: And I think this was just a move. This is a very bad team, um, Terrible and they team. just wanted to get some publicity. I mean, they could have dragged uh, somebody off yeah. of the, somewhere and said, "Hey, you want to kick and kick?" Instead of, "Oh, we'll go get the female soccer player and put her on the team so yeah. we can uh, make history." It's
4: yeah,
2: just, I'm not. I don't know about that. She, she didn't
4: do it because she to, to make history. She's she's a soccer player that, yeah. that that just happened to play for the SEC title the yep. week before, right. there is no Frank, men's gonna soccer me game, I'm going to turn you down and I'm going to finish <laughs> this, no, because he got fired the week a- a- afterwards, so if it was that big of a deal right. for him to to keep his job or anything like that, or, or for p- publicity, no, that is not why he did it, he did that because that was the best opportunity, all of the kickers were either injured or ill, so there was nothing yeah. left on his depth chart, and he needed a kicker, and you know what? They showed video of her during during practice. She can kick the hell out of that ball. So there there's no way that that we can downplay what she did by by saying that the coach was looking for publicity or anything silly like that. That's that's just out of line. Hmm.
3: Well, Chris can believe you're that naive.
4: So I I
2: I I
3: believe I refuse.
2: I believe that she was probably his best option in the Vanderbilt athletic bubble. There that, is no men's soccer team. Yeah, that he that she was because of COVID and the and the kickers that were and there was uh, un- nobody else on campus. Yeah, she was probably because she is a good kicker. I think that she was probably his best option, and it was just that and now you guys are ruining it too Um uh, let's move on. go ahead go ahead Chris. every
3: football team has somebody they have a designated kicker place kicker kickoff kicker and then there are there's somebody on every team it was like man if we ever came down to an emergency you're the kicker there maybe was that. somebody on that team that could have that could have kicked
2: maybe that guy was sick too
3: maybe maybe
2: The NHL is talking about playing games outside and not just like the one game, not just the one Winter Classic game, but playing. Uh, multiple games outside, so to... Well, they won't
3: have any black fan base. They do that.
2: Provide. <laughs> so to... So they can have uh, social Who distancing. Makes a parka? Come on.
3: <laughs> I thought they wanted to try to grow the league and have more black people come to games. <laughs>
2: That's not going to do it? Sitting outside no. is not going to be the, the thing? No. So it's It's harder,
3: obviously, to have
2: uh, uh, fans indoors right now during COVID. Outdoor stadiums, you can spread out, and just outdoor events are better in general. So a whole bunch of NHL teams, uh, let's see, the Boston Bruins, the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Anaheim Ducks, the LA Kings are all among teams that are looking into playing uh, a chunk of games outside this season. What do you think of that?
3: Hey, they got to do what they got to do, man. You, like these leagues are going to go belly up if they don't try to get some type of revenue and get people in the stands to buy those fifteen dollars beers. So it's a good uh, marketing and uh, economic move, in, in my opinion.
2: I understand Boston and Pittsburgh, but how do you play outside in Anaheim or Los Angeles?
4: They have fake ice. That's ice gotta, skating can't be. They have before. They, they, they've had a, That's a, a, be outdoor games at Dodger Stadium. Right. They had one. It was two seasons ago, I guess, or or or, or, or at least were scheduled to. So How did they do the, it? well, they, because remember, at night out there, the temperature in the, during the time when hockey's played gets down into the fifties, and right. that works well for that for that ice machine that, that they have, that they can truck around and build an ice rink outside with.
3: So they these were always <laughs> night games.
4: No, no, no. But but remember, a lot of the 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 daytime games that were, were played on January 1st, you know, the yeah. Winter Classic like here, yeah. are in areas that get cold. Right, exactly. Right. So so there there's a, a legitimate chance, though, that, that they'd have most of those as night games in places like L.A. and Anaheim. Right, yeah. But the other cities... It's you, still difficult, though. You, oh, I'm not saying it's not. Yeah. But th- if they do this early enough in the season, in the games that are slated to potentially begin in, in middle of January and February, Boston, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Detroit, all these wonderful cities... At night, outside, it's gosh darn cold. Yeah. Yep. Because all these all these hockey players grew up playing pond hockey and outdoor hockey in a lot of those cities. Yep. You could do that here here in St. Louis at night. It's down into the the twenties. I'd be hey. I'd be. I think it'd be cool if the Blues played some games
2: outside at the beginning of the year. Yeah. And let fan you know as a way. And that's the the goal.
4: And that's the goal is is (laughs) to do it at the beginning of uh, of the season when the weather is colder, and then hopefully by the time you get to the games that are in April and May, you've got the opportunity to have a larger crowd indoors because you're into more people having had a vaccine.
2: I don't know if you saw this story. Comedian Sarah Silverman said this week what we've uh, all known for a long time, but it was uh, interesting to hear somebody admit to it. Uh, She said that uh, there's a double standard when it comes to criticism and telling jokes. And she said, quote, we're liberal, so we can say anything. She said that uh, throughout her career, she has told jokes, mocking everything from religion to rape. She, you know, wore blackface in a comedy sketch sketch in 2007. And she says that uh, that she is viewed differently because she's a liberal. And a conservative comedian would not be able to get away with the things that she gets away with. It's, uh, I mean, duh, but... That's not something that people usually admit to.
3: I think we talked about this earlier in the show, Tony. Democrats equals hypocrisy. Uh, what's what, what? There's no surprise there.
2: Yeah, no. It, but it's uh, but it is pretty amazing to hear somebody, especially you know, she's a fairly famous person, to come out and admit that. Uh, do you think it? Do
3: you what think, are they going to do to her?
2: Right. Well, and do you think it <laughs> change? I mean, do you think anything? Do you think that this ever changes, or just you know, uh? depending on your political lean, that determines what you can and can't say. And well, they know that can, already. I mean, look, at, and can you can can and count? Can't joke can, about. Give me
3: one hand. Can you count on one hand how many out conservatives there are in Hollywood? No, they no. know that. No. Yeah. It's like an open secret. They know who <laughs> you can. not If you want to work, you better keep your mouth, keep your liberal, keep your conservative views to yourself if you want to work.
2: Uh, Another one. uh, Barack Obama continues his world tour. I know he's promoting a book, but man, this guy has just been everywhere. He he, he put a microphone in front of him and he's willing to talk. Uh, He took shots this week at uh, the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party and said that, uh, you know, using snappy slogans like defund the police. uh, When you do that, you lose a big part of your audience and it makes it less likely that you're actually going to get the changes you want. And uh, uh, right here in St. Louis, the congresswoman-elect, Cory Bush, fired right back at the former president saying it's not a slogan, it's a mandate. What did you think about the little back and forth between the president and uh, the new congresswoman from our area and others in this sort of uh, divide in the Democratic Party about um, you know these more progressive policies?
3: I think what Barack Obama was saying, wink, wink, nod, nod. I agree with 100 percent of everything that you say. But if you want to try to get this stuff passed, you can't be as open about it. That's what he's saying. He's saying basically I agree with you. But you can't be open about it. you got to be a wolf's in sheeps clothing. We can't well, Democrats and liberals can't really tell what they believe or nobody will ever vote for them.
2: That message though I don't don't think was received if that was indeed the <laughs> message. I don't think that was received by the members of the quote unquote squad because they all blasted the former president for that uh, that message and said you know it's not a slogan like uh, uh, who's, uh, Ilhan Omar said uh, it's not a slogan. it's a policy demand. Um and I, uh, Iona Presley said, "I'm out of patience with critics of the language that we use. So if uh, if he's trying to give them a wink and a nod, they're not picking it up."
4: I think it's well, good I... to hear because you, you look oh, I at agree. it. I think it's great to see because you look at it and, and and what that shows you is that there are many different colors in that Democratic Party. They're not all. Hard line. This is our, our viewpoint. So that means that there is going to be a possible group of people that will work across the aisle with Republicans in this upcoming administration. Cool. I hope you're and, right, well, right. You know, th- because, yeah. because 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 there are not there are not a monolith that believes to fund the police. Are you saying monolith because of the monoliths? I
2: am. <laughs> I hope you're right, but I don't I think bipartisan, I don't think that that ship is back in the dock yet. I think that bipartisanship no, on both sides is. But it shows not, that it's possible because yeah, there are different
4: views so. in that party.
2: All right, we got to wrap this one up. Once again, if you missed anything from today's show, make sure you go back and check out the podcast. And we will see you back here next week for our producer, Frank Ladd, and my partner, Chris Harps. I am Tony Colombo. Thank you so much for listening to another edition of. Of the weekend report right here on 971 FM Talk. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.
0: His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician.